the idea that we measure safety by the absence of incidents um, it, rather than the presence of the activities that make us safe um, is, is a busted concept. It's a totally busted concept. And that's why, I mean, there's two thoughts that come to me when you talk about this. And the first is about leading indicators, because leading indicators are about the for example, the quality of work, the quality, looking at work as imagined versus work as done, looking at um, the things that help us make safe, make us safe, like the quality of toolbox talks, all of those things, those are actually, a lot of those are already embedded into processes, um, like self-verification processes in many companies. So that's one way of going forward. The other way of going forward, and this is something that I've learnt from air traffic control is that, that that many all air traffic control um organizations look at the way they schedule the work how do they give people the space to make the decisions so there's a a team that looks at the aircraft coming in and they can see them eight hours in advance right like they so they can actually then work out how much work there is going to be and they can actually allocate across Europe how how to allocate those planes in different parts of airspace, how to allocate those planes to the different air traffic controllers. And I can tell you, when I've seen that and I've seen um, operational leaders from other industries going and seeing that that happening their jaws are on the floor the the concept that the that the amount of work and the type of work would be able to be scheduled and tailored in that way to give people the capacity and the space to actually see the variations because of course there's lots of weather variations and things like that so they can actually be able to see what's going on and and to actually look for the difference between workers imagined versus workers done it's it's absolutely astonishing to people that it changes their lives so i think those are the the two thoughts that i have when when you're talking about this hey everybody pre-accident investigation podcast it's todd conklin how are you are you good i hope um god i i hope could the world just be any crazier and worse? And I don't mean worse in a depressing uh, Yeah, it's depressing, but I, mean, I think we have to keep looking forward and moving ahead and doing positive things, keeping people warm, safe, love, check in on each other. But the pandemic's not over by a long shot. And they told us, that, I mean, this isn't a surprise, I guess. Remember when we first started talking about the pandemic with the epidemiologists and the docs and the, and the crisis people. I remember they, they told me, you know, this is a 36 month thing and I'll be damned if they're not going to be right. And that doesn't make me happy saying that, but it's also not going to end with like a light switch, like Tuesday's bad day, Wednesday, everybody back. I mean, we know that's not going to happen. So we've got all this transition, this new normal and the amount of social impact, professional impact, financial impact, personal impact, spiritual impact. It's been really, this is, um, it's horrible. And as a, as a person who studies human beings, which clearly you are, because why would you listen to this podcast if you, if, if that wasn't interesting to you? I mean, 
it, it there's a lot to learn here. I mean, I, I think we'll take knowledge from this at a deep level. We should. We should become better because of this. So let's make sure we build some time in for some 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 type of after action review, some some type of operational learning where we talk about what we've learned, what capacities we need, where we were tested. That ability to to learn is really key because here's one lesson we got out of this. If we don't have the preparatory capability that we need to manage uncertainty, we can't create it in time to actually use it when we need it. And and I think what we're dealing with here is sort of understanding where we had depth and preparatory capability. That's such a David Woods term. I love that term. And where we didn't. And and I think that's interesting as well. So let, let's get into the podcast because this is a good one. So I was lucky enough to get to interview Diane Chadwick-Jones. And if you don't know her, she came from BP. She's since retired. And now she's really focusing on academics around kind of this new view, safety differently, human performance stuff. And she's so much fun to talk to. And I know you're going to love every second of this podcast because it's that kind of podcast. Sit back and relax. I won't talk much. I'll talk a little maybe at the end because she really makes a point that I think is worth noting. But I'll let her make it and then I'll talk about it when we come back. So sit back, relax, enjoy. This is Diane Chadwick-Jones. Well, okay. Well, thanks, Todd. So I'm Diane Chadwick-Jones. So I, um, I, I joined BP as a, a graduate trainee about 30 years ago. And, um, as a baby. As a small baby. Of course. Absolutely. Yes. It, it was a, a child recruitment program right. at that point. And, um, now that's and illegal. So I, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I came in from Imperial College, so it's like MIT, right? And um, and I did lots of different kinds of operations jobs. And I worked in Egypt and Brazil and Brussels and you know, worked in refining and exploration and production. And then uh, about about 2005, I started working on Six Sigma. I got really involved in, in Six Sigma. And from that, that led to working in the area of safety culture in BP. And that then, because, of course, I was seeing in real life the difference between work as a matter versus work as done, it actually then led to working in the kind of systems dynamic thinking and in the area of, of human performance. And that's what then I was working on in the, the you know, for the past few years. Um, and, and now I've retired, but I still want to be part of, you know, the hive brain of, of human, but enabling human performance across the world. What a, what a cool idea, the, the notion of uh, Thomas Kuhn's Invisible College, the, the hive brain. I like that, that idea very much. What do you think, um, just just kind of going into it, what is it that's keeping you interested in this work? What's the, what's the long-term benefit for you for doing what you're doing now? Well, it's, I think it's the understanding the plight of the workforce, okay? So at the moment, I'm working with a transportation company, and the senior leaders are still sticking to follow the rules or you'll be punished. They're sticking to behavioral-based safety and they're sticking to lagging indicators. Um, and that makes me really sad because every time something bad happens in this transportation company, um, the leaders uh, go, you know, talk about how much they care, how much they care and all this is unacceptable. But yet 
when they do the incident investigation, they blame people for being um, careless or not or not uh, or not paying attention or having a lack of situational awareness. And then and then the same incident happens over and over again. And the reason why is because there's an issue with the shift, the shift um, set up. There's an issue with the, the, clear, the clarity of the procedures, the, the level of resourcing. Well, so let me ask two questions. Um, and I'll, I'll ask them separately because that'll make it uh, better. Why do you think leaders, because I see this all the time as well. Why do you think leaders so desperately hold on to what they know? And maybe I, I, I might have answered my question in my question, uh, but oh, uh, no, it's not that; it's something else. It's that, and Lord Cullen said this much better than me about you know his Ladbrook Grove and reports and the other reports, is that the person who touches the valve or the person who touches you know, the, the thing that co- appears to cause the incident, they are the last person in a long, long series of of organizational weaknesses and they're and they're just the like the trigger on the day of many many things that were set up in terms of the way the contract was set up in terms of the way that the resourcing was done in terms of the emphasis of of for example productivity or schedule over safety all of those things and so when these incident investigation reports come to senior leadership um and they they say that the root cause was that Bob was fatigued or that Rachel was distracted. There they then they it just looks like that that is the last most visible thing that so called caused the incident. And so it continues to reinforce senior leadership views because they are not out there and they didn't sit stand beside Rachel or stand beside Bob in their shoes to see the reality of what forced them to do what they did. So, so we call that phenomena, the last person who touched it, screwed it up. That's what we call it. Mm-hmm. But you're, you're, so you're making a pretty interesting case that because we send the message to leadership through many different ways, investigation outcomes, findings, reporting, that the person failed the system Leaders mm-hmm. are reinforced with that idea, and that's what they believe. Yeah, absolutely. I and I, I've seen it in so many different contexts. I it, in in so many different industries. Um, I've even seen it in baggage handling in Heathrow. I mean, and and that and I because I, I thought, oh well, you know, the aviation it'd be close, but no, it's it's just the you know, it's just the fundamental, it's a combination of fundamental attribution error combined with not understanding the reality of the work, combined with the lack of modernization of incident investigation processes. And of course, there's a huge group of, of people all over the world who think that human factors is the bad thing that people do, rather than human factors are the things that influence people in the workplace. So that's so so everything's coming around to the way we tell the story of how things happen, Uh, you know, either normal, typical work or or an accident or anything in between there. Right. And so that that seems really valuable. And I actually think your point is well taken that one of the things we can do better is to tell the story of how work is done better. Um, I I had a a manager of a, a giant company that makes automobiles. Um, a, a plant manager, a really big plant, tell me, 
that one of his biggest challenges is is that all he hears is that his employees are screw ups. So he believes mm. he manages a factory full of screw ups. And and I think that that reinforces exactly what you say. To me, what's so interesting about this is I think I I don't know how to say this. I don't want it to sound offensive to anybody, but I think we forget how important leadership is in creating the environment in which work happens. In fact, one of the things I see is leaders act, and this drives me crazy, but they act like they're the victims of an event that's happened in their facility as opposed to actually the owners of the facility in which the event happened. And this idea that leadership is really setting the course for how the organization moves forward is as obvious as the nose on our faces, but I think we forget that. What's your gut impression of that idea? So, and I I think I learned a lot from Paul O'Neill on this. Um, So in 2011, I talked a lot with him about this this concept, um, about, you know, his experiences of Alcoa. And how um, when people died, they were you know, really good at going to funerals and really good at sending flowers. And, uh, you know, uh, yeah, oh, well, you know, this is the way this is. Or, you know, oh, well, you know, I've, oh, this is really you know, bad for production. And as you said, kind of the victims. And he was really clear to his leadership team. He said, no, we are the owners of the system. We are the only of the system and, you know, we set the level of resourcing. We set how procurement works. We set how the, the, cl- the clarity of procedures. We, we, we set the maintenance of equipment. We set all of this. And so he, he did an amazing thing, actually. He, he said, right, we're, you know, this is, this is what was going to, I'm going to actually go out and tell people if there's something that I feel that you feel uncomfortable about, just uh, phone me up. Here's my phone number. So of course that happened. Somebody phones up at 11 o'clock at night and says, there's a problem with the, the lifting thing on the smelting chain. And, and, uh, yeah. And the, and the, of course the, uh, he phones up the plant manager and said, look, this is, you know, they're very worried about this. They're having to carry these ingots. Six people are having to carry these ingots rather than the conveyor doing it. And, and he said, look, I've got a cup of coffee and I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait until uh you fixed it or stopped the job or stopped the production whatever it is and so of course the plant manager goes to the plant and and fixes it and from then on the the leaders the the plant managers and the supervisors listened to the workforce and i think that story which we all know to be a, a true story which then has been repeated many many times across many industries and where we actually see leaders giving their telephone number or saying look you've got my email i I will listen to your safety concerns. Um, that shows it. That is the the great exemplar of about how leaders, even the most senior leader, even the CEO, owns the 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 workplace conditions because it's about what do we. And I know this sounds a bit not so good, but you know you get what you tolerate, right? Right. So so if you if you if you tolerate. Um, your plant managers or your supervisors, for whatever reason, not listening to the concerns of the workforce, then um, then things are you know that, that we continue with this huge difference between what 
people think about workers in the in you know ideal world and the reality of what happens on day to day. So what is it that makes a leader take that kind of ownership? Because I I really do see I was I was on a call just the other day with the fatality where the the senior leaders seemed to be really acted as if this was happening to that person, you know, that they were the victim and there's nothing they could do. They were powerless and these workers need to be more careful and try harder. And what more can I do? What is it that separates good from bad or, or contemporary leaders from traditional leaders or whatever value judgment term you want to use to determine the difference between the two? I think there's a few things because, of course, we know that all leaders are good people and they really care. Okay, so we all know that. Um, But but what what Uh, you've you've had a bad leader, yeah. Um, occasionally, but the the point is, the word all kind of poked me a little when you said it. I'll I'll explain why I say that. No, I'll explain why I say that because they all think Ah. they are good people. Ah. And that they really care. I miss the word they think. So they all think they all deeply believe that they are good people and that they really care. Right. But where there's I think there's probably two things that distinguish um, that, uh, the ones who kind of take it further and the ones who feel like they're victims and this is just you know from many many years of of lots of interactions across many companies um and the first thing is some sort of operations experience okay that makes a big difference um because the ability to actually kind of ask questions uh, when they're presented with the um uh, the incident investigation, you know, deeply understanding um, that people are just part of a system rather than thinking that people are the problem is comes from being in a, uh, from, from having some sort of operations background, whether that's being an air traffic, having been an air traffic controller, having been a maintenance engineer, having been a, a, a railway station manager, you know, it, it, it's just so closer to the front line. Um, so that's the first thing. But the second thing, and that, that's, of course, what you know, led Paul O'Neill to be the great leader that he was, because he spent so many years in the, in the pulp, pulp paper industry. But the second thing is um, this whole level of curiosity, I think, because, they, because they're always wanting to know. It, they don't think... They instinctively don't think that being told that the reason why the accident happened was because um, so-and-so didn't pay attention. They're going, well, well why didn't so-and-so pay attention? You know, they ask further questions. So there's, a, and, you know, some leaders, I think, you know, like sometimes in my head, I kind of think that they're curious George because they, the really good ones, they just keep on asking. They keep on digging to understand because they, they keep on thinking, well, hang on, just, you know, telling people to pay more attention well, how's that going to work out for us? I mean, I, I actually need to find out what's causing the distraction. Of course, it's because, you know, they're supposed to do three tasks at the same time, for example. Oh, so they're supposed to do this, this and this at the same time. Oh, well, now we know how to change the way the work is designed so that this won't happen again. I mean, we're not denying that, that Bob was distracted. Let's 
understand what caused it. And I, that I see as an, a, a really wonderful leadership um, trait. And what that then ena- enables is that when bad things do happen, instead of going, let's blame Bob, they say, huh, well, we've got good people. Um, so they must have been in a really difficult situation. Um, so let's, let's, let's find out more about why anybody else under those circumstances would have done this. And, and that then opens up the whole safety culture of the organization, because then people will speak up about even about small things are curious they know they'll be listened to are curious leaders born or are they made nature versus nurture i've seen them i i think i've seen them made i've seen them made i've seen so many people um be so clear on their path of um training the workforce to um be more situational aware, for for example, and and the closer and closer they get to the reality of what's going on, the the more they change. So there was one particular particular leader over ten years ago, I think, where when we showed him the difference between we're in an aviation context, um, the difference between workers imagined workers done, he come, almost changed overnight, and it was. It was a, a beautiful thing to see, actually, because we weren't making him wrong or blaming him or anything. There was no blame. It was like, well, you know, this thing that you're really angry about. Well, this is actually the reality of what's going on. Who's going, oh, you know, it's, so I, I think it is possible to um, to actually build skills in leadership to, to be more curious and to ask the right kind of questions because just asking what makes the work difficult is pretty much the most powerful question of all. Wow. Yeah, you're right. So let me ask, let me, this is just entirely selfishly for me, but let me ask this question. One of the biggest challenges I encounter are leaders who think they already know. I already do this. I've, I already know this. I'm, I'm already there and, and they're clearly not. How do you handle that? Well, the, and it's so funny because somebody actually sent me an email exactly about that today. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a real problem. And, I... Yeah. And, and so I, and my reply was, well, let us talk, let, let's use, for example, you know, the great Baker Hughes work, um, what lies beneath job planning videos to show the first video, five minutes of the work being done and the near miss happening and people making so-called poor choices. And then the other five minute video actually shows, um, you know, the things that came before, you know, the, the way that, that it was a short call out contract that the people were not qualified to do the job. Actually, they didn't have the right equipment. There wasn't the clear job specification. And I have seen with my own eyes in a meeting of 70 senior leaders from across industry, right? That being run by Baker Hughes in 2015 and the transformation that actually happened when they just showed those two videos. And I thought, wow. So, you know, and and there's nothing quite like another senior leader talking to somebody saying about what they've learned and, and showing vulnerability and saying, look, I was wrong. Okay. I was wrong. I spent X number of years telling people follow the rules or you'll be punished. But now that I've looked into this in more de- depth and, and, and by the way, follow the rules is good, 
right? But what we're talking about is that it only takes us so far because, of course, the rules will be often not quite right or difficult to follow, right? So now to get us to the next level of safety performance, we have to now look at how the system is set up, how how the procedures are set up. And and, and so leaders, and so that's the second thing. One was the you know, these Baker Hughes videos, which are magical. and the, But the second thing is about leaders who've come to the realization being showing vulnerability and saying look i i you know i've spent years holding people to account to follow the rules but now what i understand is that because of the system complexity and so many different interacting parts that in fact the way that people encounter work on the day is pretty different from what we thought it was and 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 we need to know more of that because of the the gap that brings risk and it brings opportunities but it's those are that's hidden risk there the gap between workers imagine versus workers time so when you work with leaders and help them on this journey and help them understand the important role they play in creating the environment in which improvement happens what's your tactic what's what's the most important lesson your career's taught you about interfacing with that group because that's such an interesting and important uh, part of what we do well to understand that this is not about belief or a religion but it's actually about data and that that has been a very because of course you know you and i don't think this is any sort of belief or religion because we know this works we've seen it work in so many different contexts over so many different decades right um but actually showing the data of how um a culture of care and i don't mean you know be careful or try harder i mean leaders encouraging speak up listening and fixing things which is how of course we improve the system curious that, curious leaders that, yeah, that absolutely. Those, those actually directly correlate to safety performance. And you know, I've published a, a research paper on that. Um, but that data is really important because it actually shows, it, it, you know, rather than doing a whole bunch of safety culture surveys, you just use your normal annual survey, which has got those kind of questions in about trust and care and speak up and listening. So that's um, the kind of one one piece there then the other piece is around incident investigation data so i'm talking one about you know safety culture data and the other one's incident investigation data where um where for example and this is again published a, a, a case study on just culture which shows that you know for, for the, the cases where it looked like people were intentionally not following the rules when those questions were asked about was it the procedure was it the resourcing was it the equipment that in most cases, it was a, a combination of systemic issues, system issues, rather than anything to do with the person who who would be, you know, for, for, people think that this person is kind of rushing to do the job to get home early or things like that. None of that came out. And it was mo mostly about the, the way the system was set up. So then that's the second piece of data. And I think those two pieces of data help to move forward an, an organization the only caveat to this is that if those leaders are not don't have an operational back background then they find it very difficult to connect to that rea those realities 
Okay. And so for those leaders who don't have an operational background, then it's more about peer to peer influencing and the their peers who have had an operational background explaining to them. So that that's just, you know, how, you know, those are, those are the thoughts on, you know, what has worked in the past. What, how can we, how can we help the, the very senior leaders of organizations identify those peers? Because that is a real challenge. If you're the, if you're the managing director, the, the CEO, the senior leader, you really don't have peers in the organization by definition. Your peers would be across the organization and creating those hive mentalities for leaders, I think is, is potentially a really valuable part of what we can help facilitate. But I think that's a sticky wicket to an extent. From what I've noticed in a number of organizations, it feels like the head of safety has a real catalytic role in this. Because really what the head of safety should be is an influencer. That that head of safety should be spending a, a very high proportion of their time influencing, bringing the right people together. Um, and, you know, I, I've met, met some extremely um, inspirational heads of safety. Like, for example, last week I met uh, from the pharmaceutical industry, a, a head of safety who is actually doing that in terms of bringing the different leaders together. The ones who, who, who are totally understanding the system dynamics view and others who are still in the um, in the traditional people of the problem view and and bringing them together um so that that's my thought on what appears to work is that the, the head of the that's a pivotal role and of course the great thing about heads of safety nowadays is that they are put in that place to be the innovators to say well how do we get beyond the, the safety plateau because we've got a safety plateau that's caused by bbs and link linked to lagging in, uh, lagging indicators focus um you know that's not working out for us where do we go from here and that and you know, that's what the ceo is asking of them and and that's what they're delivering and i i see that in quite a lot of companies and it's it's becoming more and more clear to me that in fact um the companies who stick with bbs those will become the outliers and they will be seen by as outliers because of their poor safety performance. Did you ever imagine in a million billion years that the work we do would become eventually identified as innovative, as, as leading organizational change, not just for safety, not just for reliability, but really for operations. Does that surprise you? Um, I, I always thought that, that safety culture was was just a way of improving organizational culture in general. And I mean, this is what Paul O'Neill taught me. He said that he led through the value of safety that, because the very same attention to detail that that you do on safety also gives you efficiency. Uh, because you find the defects. And so we're not talking about, you know, safety is a good thing because you have less downtime. No, we're talking about the small things, mm -hmm. the small inefficient, the small issues and the ability just to speak up about any sort of organizational um, concern, not just a safety concern. Um, and that kind of the, that the building of trust 
where leaders say, d- d- listen, and they say they will help to fix things and that they actually do. And so then people tell them more and tell them more. And so that, so I, so it's almost as if safety as living safety as a value, as the core value through which all decisions are made, which means that nothing, nothing comes above no, no business consideration, no business, like whether it's schedule or cost or whatever, beats safety. That that is a, the real way of showing care to the workforce by saying, well, you know, we are going to put kind of your well-being above everything else. But, but, but we, not only it's the right thing to do, but also it means that we find all of those inefficiencies and issues in the company and we can fix those before they catch up with us. So there you go. That was the, a pretty great conversation. What do you think about this idea of a reluctant innovator? Um, you are a reluctant innovator. Reluctance is my word. Innovator is really Diane's word. But um, I, I'm not sure you took this job to become an innovator, to, to really innovate the organization as a whole. And yet I would absolutely look you in the face and tell you that's exactly why you took this job, is to innovate the organization. And I think we reluctantly or trickily, we were tricked into this. That's what we became. And that's where we are. And that, I think, is a really interesting part of this podcast. It kind of worthwhile. I mean, that sort of makes it worth listening to the whole dang podcast just for that reason alone. <laughs> so there you go. So let's talk more. Um, Diane will be back. She's got uh, something else she wants to talk to us about. But we sort of ran out of time this time. And it's better to save it into two. So I'll bring it back for sure because that's with great requests. Thanks for all the questions you guys are sending me. I've got a bunch of them. I'm actually really surprised. If you have questions, office Todd Conklin, gmail.com. Um, I'll do a question show. It's coming up, actually. I'll do it pretty quickly, so get them in if you want to. Until then, learn something new every single day. You did today, I know. Have as much fun as you possibly can. Be kind to each other. That's really important. Check in on one another. And for goodness sakes, you guys, be safe.